Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. The following is a Podcast One and Reels Channel presentation. This program contains graphic violence and sexual situations. Viewer discretion is advised. In 2002, two unknown assailants begin to hunt human prey in the Washington, D.C. area. Their weapon of choice is a high-powered rifle. Millions of people began to fear for their lives. This is way out of the ordinary. We knew we had a mystery on our hands. For three weeks, the nation watches in horror as 13 seemingly unconnected people are shot at random. The Washington Beltway was turned into a bloodbath. Mothers, fathers, black, white, children, adults, it doesn't matter. Anyone out in the open risks being shot. I was 13 years old when I was shot by the D.C. snipers. Law enforcement conducts a massive manhunt, but officers on the case are left baffled. It almost seems like he's a ghost because he's moving really quickly, point A to point B. No one had ever experienced a spree killing to this extent. Orchestrating the slayings is a mastermind hell-bent on mayhem. Behind the trigger is an abandoned youth-turned-boy soldier. Their crimes and the resulting media coverage prove time and again that no one is safe. It changed the terror level from 10 to 10 times 10 times 10. Even law enforcement authorities are uncertain of the level of danger that they are up against. I was hoping that none of our officers were going to get killed. Meet John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo, a.k.a. the D.C. Snipers. Two outcasts on nobody's radar until murder made them famous. Just one year after 9-11 and a national anthrax scare, the prospect of sudden death haunted millions of people yet again with the D.C. sniper attacks. These shootings were brutal, bloody, and random. Anybody could be a victim. Anybody. Several authors and documentarians have attempted to explain the motive behind John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo's shooting spree. A lot of people have theories about why they did it, but really there's no good explanation to justify it. The case has been explored in television and feature films, including the 2013 release Blue Caprice, starring Isaiah Washington in the role of John Muhammad. But what led Muhammad and later Lee Malvo down such a dark and murderous path? Right now. <sighs> I'm so glad you're home. No. Doting father John Allen Williams spends several years in the Army National Guard. He and his wife Mildred live in Washington State and have three children. In the late 1980s, John discovers the nation of Islam. He will eventually convert to Islam and begin using the alias John Allen Muhammad. In 1991, Muhammad is deployed to Saudi Arabia in preparation for the first Gulf War. He allegedly squabbles over racial issues with fellow soldiers. According to the book Sniper, his squad mates take issue with him wearing an unauthorized headscarf. Give me that back. Get off my case. And mind your own biz. 
This is an individual who certainly had issues with anger, issues with expressing himself. We're about to go to war, people. I don't need you fighting with each other. Get this place squared away and outside and five for NBC drill. Damn it, John. John Muhammad felt that his fellow soldiers had slighted him. The whole situation was a powder keg ready to go off, and one night it did. It's alleged that while fellow soldiers around him sleep, Muhammad tosses a thermite smoke grenade into their tent. The act alone of what occurred with that grenade, this is indicative of what a terrorist does. This isn't targeting an individual. This is a mass attack. no serious injuries. You'd think something like that would be a huge black mark, but for some reason, there's no mention of the grenade incident in Muhammad's records. John Muhammad saw combat for about three months. However, that three months was so impactful that the people who knew him prior to combat say that the person that came home from that three months at war was a very different person. John, why didn't you tell them to be quiet? How did woke the baby? He was colder. He was more distant. John. Whatever. That ain't right, John. Man, you're going to have to do more since you're living back in this house, now. Hey, y'all keep it down in here, all right? Mohammed and Mildred's marriage was filled with strife, and they eventually separated. By 2000, Mohammed is no longer living with Mildred. He attempts to see his children, but his estranged wife wants them nowhere near him. Mommy, it's Daddy. So we're going back to your room. What you want, John? I just want to see my boy. No. John Jr., sleep. You're going to have to come back later. What? You really think... That I'm going to let you raise my children without me? How that guy could stay in a relationship for any period of time was amazing. Ah! Just based on that anger, over-the-top reaction. One day, John picks his children up, ostensibly to go shopping. It's Daddy! How y'all doing? Missed y'all. This was all a big made-up plan for Muhammad to try to get his kids back and to wreak revenge on his ex-wife. Who wants to go on a trip? Let's go. He does not return the children to Mildred. And just like that, John Muhammad swept in, took his kids, and disappeared. 911, what's your emergency? My kids never came home. There's three of them. Um, there's Selena. According to Mildred, she contacts the police, but is told that without a court-mandated parenting plan, there was little they can do. That day was just the beginning of a year and a half of not seeing or knowing where her children were. Mohammed has kidnapped his 
own children and flees from the United States. John takes the children and flees to a small island in the Caribbean called Antigua. Beyond the facade of beaches and cocktails, island life isn't exactly easy for Jamaican-born Lee Boyd Malvo. Lee Boyd Malvo had been abandoned multiple times throughout his youth. The culture in the islands is different. There's a lot of single mothers. There's a lot of broken families. Lee Boyd Malvo's mom was the epitome of the neglectful parent. Under the guise of looking for work, she left Antigua and left him there alone to sort of fend for himself. And this left him with a huge longing and void for a father figure. In Antigua, John Mohammed supports himself and his children through illicit means. John Mohammed was a serial forger. Mohammed made money by selling fake IDs and immigration papers. And that's when he met 15-year-old Lee Boyd Malvo at a business called Zaza Electronics. You want to play? Come on in. Malvo was desperate for a parent, so when Muhammad came along, it was probably seen as sort of a gift from the gods. He jumped at the opportunity to have some adult be interested in him and want to help him in some way. They started hanging out more and more, and eventually, Malvo was calling Muhammad dad. Eventually, Muhammad invites Lee to live with him and his children. Lee. Malvo is desperate for anyone to come in and parent him, and John swoops in and saves him. It's going to be all right. I'm going to take care of everything. You want to live with me? Malvo's situation, when John discovers him, is perfect in terms of a predator looking for prey to groom. Antiguan authorities suspect that Muhammad is forging immigration documents and smuggling illegal immigrants. So Muhammad flees the Caribbean in 2001. John makes the decision to board plane with his children and fly them back to Washington State, while Malvo has made contact with his mother, who is now in Florida, and plans are made for him to join her there. Authorities in Washington State locate Muhammad's children and reunite them with Mildred. When she files for custody, the judge revokes John's parental privileges. Court adjourned. He was very unhappy with regard to the fact that she ended up with the children. You did this. Those are my kids you taking. What well, ain't my kids now? It ain't nothing you can do about it, John. After all I did for you? What you did for me? All you did was cause me heartache and strife, John. You are my enemy. And I will kill you. I'd like to see you try. As soon as Mildred got her kids back, she vanished, changed her name, and moved as far away from Mohammed as possible. Hello? Hello? John? Yeah. I'm trying to find Mildred. I'm, I'm not trying to start no trouble. The realization that he may never see his kids again made something seemingly snap inside of Muhammad. I don't know where she went. That's why I'm asking you. I'm just trying to find my damn kids. Muhammad may have lost his biological children, 
but there was still someone in his life who was like a son to him. This is Lee? Son, I need you. He was devastated and heartbroken and in the throes of all of those very dark emotions. According to the book, The Making of Lee Boyd Malvo, Muhammad asks Malvo to join him in Washington State. When Lee Boyd Malvo arrived, it was essentially a parent-child reunion. And so in a lot of ways, I think Mr. Malvo served as a proxy for John Muhammad's children. The next few months were a period of intense indoctrination, where Mohammed used fatherly approval and discipline to brainwash Malvo. They started with video games. Boy, you got to get a grip. You need to learn to control your emotions. That's the only way to get ahead in this life. Video games of killing are used for training purposes. That was, I believe, part of Muhammad's plan in desensitizing Malvo to the act of killing. This ain't even a real thing. If you can't handle this, what's going to happen when you get out there? What you going to do when you got to look down them crosshairs at a human, flesh and blood, beating hard, and you about to put a piece of lead in it? What you going to do? You going to quit? You going to give up? Are you going to finish the mission? Play again. So Mohammed gradually brainwashed Malvo into becoming his disciple of killing. John Mohammed will soon convince Lee Malvo to aim at live targets, and the result will leave multiple bodies in its wake. John Mohammed and Lee Boyd Malvo the two men who will soon become infamous for the D.C. sniper slayings are preparing to strike back at a world they feel has wronged them. In Malvo, Muhammad has not only found a surrogate son, but also a vessel he's training to serve in his unholy war. Over time, Muhammad builds Malvo into a child soldier, a killing machine. Look down that barrel and breathe in. Muhammad was a sergeant in Desert Storm and knew how to train killers. And squeeze. Repetition. Practice. Do it again. This time, pick to the person you hate most in the world. There's so much behind becoming a marksman and, and ultimately a, a skilled sniper. Good job, son. You are natural. Thank you, ready now. Muhammad takes Malvo to the home of Isa Nichols, a friend of Muhammad's ex-wife, Mildred. It's time to man up, boy. Let's do this. Angry over the fact that Mildred has gained custody of their children, Muhammad is out for revenge. Hang on a minute. The door was answered by Isa Nichols' niece. Hi, can I help you? That murder was supposed to be one of the first tests that Malvo had 
to prove his loyalty to Muhammad and to Muhammad's principles. It was like passing a test and that it paved the way for further killings. Lee Boyd Malvo has killed an innocent woman and escaped undetected. John, now Lee's father figure, has more sinister plans in store. So he trains the boy for what's to come. Masquerading as father and son, they continued their obsessive training regimen. Mohammed had Malvo listen to sound bites that promoted the idea that the black man was enslaved to the white man and that they were held in poverty. The white race are devils who have enslaved our people. What we're about to do will require killing them. But it will make for a much more fair and righteous society. Now give me another 50. As part of this training regimen, Mohammed put Malvo on a strict diet. Eat. That's what soldiers eat. Mohammed was the soldier. Mohammed was the one who set up the idea that this was some type of a righteous war. Mohammed is angry at the world because his kids have been taken by his ex-wife. He also feels oppressed by the white race. But without a singular focus for his anger, everyone becomes a target. I really flood that, you know, Dad? Like what? Like I'm a real soldier. You are a real soldier. And a damn good one, too. And a hell of a shot, son. Muhammad suspects that his estranged wife and children are living on the East Coast. So he and Malvo head to Washington, D.C. Eventually, Muhammad and Malvo stole a rifle from a gun store. And Muhammad taught Malvo how to shoot it. You like that? Yeah. Like the way that feel? Yeah. Imagine the damage you could do if you had a silencer. Mind old sniper. <laughs> there are two things Muhammad needs to launch his plan. The first is money, and the second is more target practice for Malvo, his boy soldier. He finds an opportunity for both in Paul LaRuffa, the owner of an Italian restaurant. Steady your breathing. After brutally shooting Paul LaRuffa, Malvo stole his briefcase full of thousands of dollars. And they used that money to finance their campaign of terror. Mohammed and Malvo then traveled to New Jersey, where they shop for a vehicle they can customize for their deadly mission. Guess what I'm looking for? I take it. Congratulations. Not for me. It's for my son. Mohammed bought a blue Chevy Caprice that they modified so that they could climb into the trunk and shoot out the back without being seen. 
It's a very big vehicle, these Chevy Caprices, and there's a lot of trunk space. They created the trunk almost as a nest, and they did so by uh, boring a hole in the trunk and a person could lay and be in a very relaxed, prone shooting position. It was definitely done to give them the ability to hide and to shoot with a minimum of exposure to the public, and this is what snipers do. Muhammad and Malvo take their terror campaign south to Montgomery, Alabama. Claudine Parker and Kelly Adams are closing up the liquor store where they work when they are ambushed. No one has any reason to believe that Lee Boyd Malvo or John Muhammad would be in any way connected to this crime that has occurred in Alabama except for the fact that they leave behind a piece of evidence. Since Muhammad believes his ex-wife Mildred is hiding with his children somewhere in the D.C. area, he and Malvo return there. They begin terrorizing the region, and their next target is 55-year-old James Martin. Look at this son of a bitch. Shoot him in the head. Muhammad acted as a lookout with Malvo in that trunk. He could see his target, but he might not necessarily be able to know it's approaching until Muhammad calls a shot. Breathe in. One, two, squeeze. Good job, son. We knew we had a mystery on our hands. Some person dies, they've been shot. That's our job to figure out what it is. Suit up and get out there. Terry Ryan was one of our investigators, actually conducting the investigation itself. He was seasoned. He was good at what he did. Early in the investigation, we didn't know the motives. We didn't know who we were looking for initially. We didn't know what was going on yet. That was the bottom line. The next day, October 3rd, was the day that they proved how dangerous and deadly they were going to be. In the Aspen Hill area of Montgomery County, Maryland, James Sonny Buchanan Jr. is mowing the grass. The food stolen and advance on the top. Breathe in and squeeze that trigger. The selection of the targets made no sense whatsoever. It was suspected that the suspect might have a military background because of the sniper-type shootings that were taking place. It would be a little bit more removed and easier to do than if you're having to look right at the person's face while you're killing them. It makes it easier. It makes it less personal. And maybe in their minds it was even beginning to be fun to pick off people like a video game. Over the next several hours, Muhammad and Malvo continue their random selection of victims. Muhammad and Malvo weren't finished yet. The body count continues to rise. Prem Kumar Ulekar, age 54. Sarah Ramos, age 34. Lori Ann Lewis Rivera, age 25 and Pascal Charlot, age 72, fall to the sniper's bullets. 
By the end of the day, the body count stands at five. The police are frantic. They have absolutely nothing to go on with the exception of one single eyewitness reporting a white van speeding away. When the witness gives you information, it all becomes pertinent until you rule it out. But we have to make a decision. Are we going to put this information out or are we going to sit on it? It was a damned if you do or a damned if you don't situation. Uh, we are looking for light colored Chevy Astro van. We made the decision. It was the best uh, information we had at the time. So while police, the media, and the public were looking for white box trucks, which were everywhere in the D.C. area, no one was looking for a blue Chevy Caprice. Even though he isn't a suspect, John Muhammad inadvertently draws the attention of law enforcement when he commits a minor traffic violation. There's also a possibility that law enforcement was going to be a target. Has a police officer gotten his hands on one of the D.C. snipers? Or will he be the latest addition to Muhammad's body count? Murder Made Me Famous will be back after a word from our sponsors. This program contains graphic violence and sexual situations. Viewer discretion is advised. John Allen Muhammad, one of the two D.C. snipers terrorizing the Capitol Beltway, has been pulled over by police for a traffic violation. They don't know that what they're stopping, who they're stopping, what they're dealing with has anything to do with the sniper shootings. No one is looking for a blue caprice. Muhammad and his teenage protege, Lee Malvo, have committed numerous murders and unleashed a nationwide wave of terror. No one is safe, even the authorities searching for the killers. Let me see your license registration, please. They intended to kill a police officer in the Baltimore area and then attack the officers that would attend the funeral service. If there's not an outstanding warrant or there's not a, a probable cause to arrest and they're not doing anything at that point, there's nothing the officer can do and definitely no way to hook it to the sniper shootings. I'm going to let you go with the warning. I really appreciate your leniency, officer. You have a good night. You do the same. Yes, it's frustrating, but a good police officer knows if we don't have probable cause, evidence, what have you, we just have to let the people go. The snipers are in the D.C. area in an attempt to find Muhammad's ex-wife, Mildred. They next strike in Fredericksburg, Virginia, where they shoot 43-year-old Carolyn Sewell in the back. Sewell survives her attack. The seventh shooting happened more than 50 miles away, so the perimeter that cops were looking at had just gotten much bigger. Law enforcement has now identified a search area stretching close to 75 miles long. That broadened and widened the area where they were shooting, and that created a great deal more concern and panic amongst the public. Mohammed and Malvo took everyday activities and infused them with terror. Craft stores, grocery stores, gas stations become places of fear. The public became fearful as the homicides occur and because they were happening to people doing everyday activities. Just the fear factor of, should I go to the grocery store? Should I pump gas? Should I send the kids to school? My name is Iron Brown, and I was 13 years old when I was shot by the D.C. snipers. 
On October 7, 2002, Muhammad and Malvo take up a position near Benjamin Tasker Middle School in Maryland. And they search for a target. It's almost unthinkable that somebody is going to shoot a young person at a school, but it happened. I remember everything like it was yesterday. It's a typical morning. I said my goodbyes, and I proceeded to go to the front of the school. You see that kid with the backpack on? Shoot him in the head. It was loud like a bomb went off. Felt the burning sensation. I immediately fell to the ground. I was in shock. Are you okay? Okay, okay, it's gonna be. I okay. do recall a teacher running out and checking on me. Uh, okay, okay. Help! When it pierced me, it broke into a bunch of pieces. It was a burning sensation. It was hard to breathe. I said, the head. With the shooting of Iron Brown, it changed the terror level from 10 to 10 times 10 times 10. People were scared to take their children to school. I still have fragments in me to this day. The fact that Mohammed and Malvo were willing to shoot an unarmed teenager should tell you how cold-blooded they had become. When I was shot, that was the turning point in the case because that was the first sign or clue that they left. The day that Iran Brown got shot in Prince George's County, there was a search of the area looking for evidence. Officers located what was later identified as a tarot card. For you, Mr. Police, call me God. This is creepy. I think the message was instill fear. There's an immediate response to that of, it could be my own child. And of course, the community is saying, what are you going to do to protect our children? Aside from the tarot card Muhammad and Malvo have left behind, police have few leads as to who's behind the killings. One of the most difficult things in working cases like this for the police is the connection between victims and evidence. And unfortunately, in a case like this where more evidence is desperately needed, it means you have to have more victims. On October 9th, 53-year-old Dean Harold Myers stops at a gas station to fill his car. Early in the investigation, I wasn't convinced that this was a skilled shooter by any means. We realized some of the victims seemed to be within what are known as goalposts. If this individual is between these points, there's greater likelihood that they're going to hit their target. And just like that, the D.C. snipers had claimed another victim. Police move in to investigate the latest D.C. sniper murder, unaware that their every move is being watched by the killers. Lee Boyd Malvo and John Muhammad, 
The two men behind the DC sniper slayings have struck again. The latest random victim is Dean Harold Myers, a man filling his car at a gas station. The Myers man confirms to police the M.O. of the snipers. They knew what law enforcement was doing, and then they would watch crime scene investigations in some instances. They'd gotten quite comfortable with their ability to blend in. They were that good at keeping invisible in among the people in the community. In addition to watching their crime scene from afar, Muhammad and Malvo seem to enjoy taunting authorities. They leave another sinister message, this one containing demands. For you, Mr. Police, call me God. Your incompetence has cost another life. You will place $10 million in the Bank of America account. You have until 9 a.m. to deliver the money. Your children are not safe. When you look at the demand letter, it shows a lot of things about what's going on in these men's minds. Mohammed demanded $10 million to use to start this utopian world of children. Montgomery County opens up a telephone tip line and broadcasts it on national television. It receives thousands of calls a day. Sometimes even the calls that seem a little bit crazy may actually be related. It may actually be the person. So they have to be listened to and they have to be weeded out. Shockingly, Malvo himself calls the tip line, revealing new details about a shooting previously thought unrelated to the D.C. snipers. Don't speak. Just listen. The people that are causing the killing in your area. We've called you three times before trying to set up negotiations. We've got no response. People have died. Malvo, who had made these phone calls, ends up being his own worst enemy. Malvo told police about a shooting of two women in Alabama. He pointed us with information he provided to a shooting at a liquor store in Montgomery County, Alabama. One of the things that they discovered was that that shooting in Alabama could be connected to some of the shootings that were going on on the East Coast. They ran the fingerprints that had been left behind when the suspect was fleeing the scene, and the fingerprints matched an immigration document with the name of Lee Boyd Malvo. Do not play these childish games with us. You know our demands, your choice. P.S. Your children are not safe. And so the pieces were coming together very fast, and we were very confident that we were zeroing in on the right people. When there was finally a name that was attached to the killer, there was pressure being exerted on law enforcement. Find this kid. Two days later, the cops track Malvo's call to a payphone. Nearby, they spot a white van, which matches the description of the vehicle some eyewitnesses claimed to have seen leaving past shootings. Now remember, cops were on the lookout for either a white van or a box truck, because witnesses at previous shootings had reported seeing one of them leaving the scene. Dispatch, need plate run, white van, Bravo Alpha 0523, possible suspects at location. 
¿Está bien? Ok, ¿qué están haciendo? Within minutes or hours of that particular arrest being made down there, they determined it was not them at all. Once you learn that that information isn't the best information, you just push it aside and keep moving forward. Then, police get the big break they have been waiting for. One of the people who calls the FBI tip line is a former Army comrade of John Muhammad. The caller will later state that something in his gut told him Muhammad was involved in the sniper slayings. One of Muhammad's old army buddies calls the hotline and says he thinks he knows who the sniper is, and he drops Muhammad's name. Once the task force had identified Muhammad and Malvo as the suspects, one of the standard operating procedures is to view the NCIC and see what vehicles he may have uh, registered to him. What we learned was that he had purchased a vehicle in New Jersey and that it was a large, dark blue Chevy Caprice. We had to put that information out. But by the time police begin their search for Muhammad and Malvo, the snipers have already struck again. On October 22nd, bus driver Conrad Johnson is gunned down inside his commuter bus. Mr. Johnson... Unfortunately, like most of the other victims, never had a chance. The communities have been living in terror for what feels like an eternity. Their fear is starting to turn to anger, and it's turning to anger at the police. All they want is somebody in custody. On October 24th, Muhammad and Malvo park at a rest stop in Frederick, Maryland, to get some sleep. Little do they know, they have just sealed their fate. A driver at the same rest stop recognizes the blue caprice and calls 911. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah, I think I see the car. Uh, the, the sniper's car. You know, the, the guy that's been killing people? Sir, I need you to remain in your vehicle until the police arrive. Police have the DC snipers in their sights, but with two perpetrators who have proven they're willing to take innocent lives. Will more victims be added to the body count? John Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo, the D.C. snipers who have murdered 10 people and wounded numerous others, are sleeping in their vehicle at a rest stop in Maryland. Unbeknownst to them, law enforcement has them surrounded. It was a very quiet, cool, cold night. Very still. Bernard Forsyth, captain of the Montgomery County Police Major Crimes Division, is one of the authorities on site for the attempted takedown. I was hoping that, obviously, first and foremost, that none of our officers were going to get injured, shot, killed, whatever. It's going to be a dangerous extraction, to say the least. The white race are devils and have enslaved our people. Call me God.
FBI, FBI, let me see the hands. Let me see the hands. Let me see the hands. FBI, FBI, let me see the hands. Hands. At last, the search for John Mohammed and Lee Malvo, the DC snipers, had come to an end. Both of them were handcuffed and they were separated. And one of my first impressions uh, was that, you know, they looked pretty normal. They were just two people wreaking havoc. The task force had done the job. And I went and I visited my wife and I just hugged her and whispered in her ear. I said, we got him. I said, you can't tell anybody, but we got him. Terry Ryan. One of the investigators assigned to the case is given the task of interrogating the 17-year-old Lee Malvo. Hello, Lee. I'm Detective Ryan. How you doing over there? You've had a hell of a day. Malvo blamed himself for falling asleep because he was there to protect his father. That's what it was about for him. What you tell me in this room, right here and right now, is going to make all the difference in the rest of your life. And this interview was completely nonverbal on Malva's part. He did not respond to me verbally. So what happened out there? The responses I got are limited to just how he would react physically to my questions. What was this all about? All right. Silence doesn't help you. So was it about the money? It's always about the money. He expressed emotion at, at times. <laughs> Ten years later, Lee Malvo gave an interview to Matt Lauer, and he claimed that he'd been sexually molested by John Mohammed throughout the shootings. I'll be back. Lee Malvo is sentenced to prison for life. Prosecutors in Mohammed's trial argue that his goal was to kill Mildred and regain custody of their children. Definitely the uh, end of his marriage and losing those children, I think, ended up being quite a blow. It's not unusual for it to be a stew of things, maybe, that gets people to a point where they break and they decide to do something. It's not just one thing. Muhammad is sentenced to death. His children hope for a call from their father before his execution, but it never comes. Hey, John, don't you want to make one last phone call? Maybe talk to your kids? No. On November 10th, 2009, Muhammad is executed via lethal injection. So how was John Mohammed able to manipulate Lee Malvo into doing whatever he asked? Was it because Malvo needed a father figure? Because Mohammed is dead, we may never know the answer. I can relate to him not having a father figure. I never met my father. Not having a father figure in your life is not a justification to hurt others. This is just a reminder that I'm blessed. I give thanks every morning. I'm alive. 
that concludes this episode of Murder Made Me Famous. Don't forget to go to Reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com, for clips, extras, and more. And don't forget to subscribe on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts.